Rats and Starfish, in honor of the Suicide Squad, who is your favorite cinematic antihero? Uh, I'm Katie Rich, and I'm going to go with the woman who will ruin your wedding and look great while doing it, Anne Hathaway as Kim in Rachel Getting Married. I'm Matt Patches, and I'm going to go with Godzilla! Because he's an antihero, right? I mean, he... Yeah, yeah. That, that's actually, that's a really Not good answer. Heroic. Uh <laughs> I mean, I'm David the Seven and the pain teenage boy who lived through 1999 that I am at my core. Knows so much about Tyler Durden. So Tyler Durden. Uh, I'm David Ehrlich, and I'm Google. I'm right now on the Wikipedia page for anti-heroes <laughs> because... David, you've I, seen every movie ever made. It, it, that is far from true, but it also feels like a term that no longer means anything to my head. Like, the definition seems very blobby. What about Nick you Cage know, and Con Air? And my favorite anti-hero is Nick Cage and Con Air. Mm. Original thought. Gonna go see it. my today. Seven years. Gonna go see my baby girl. See, I know you like that. Daddy's coming home. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good. Then, well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It's episode 359. It's Pandemic 72. That's the week of Wednesday, August 4th, which is the day that in 1984, Prince's Purple Rain went to number one on the Billboard charts and stayed there for 24 weeks. And not at all a coincidence, David the Seven was born. Whoa. Yeah. Okay, Dave. I came with Purple Rain. What was the movie that was <laughs> uh, number one when you were born? Oh, that was you number know, one when I was born. Mine, I don't know. My, mine is Ghostbusters, which I feel like is like that's pretty fine. Crazy. Wait, I this guess. is a good question. Do I have time to look mine up? Wait, yours is Ghostbusters, Probably. and you're haunted Mine's... by that movie to this day. You hate. I know. The fan. Well, no, I don't hate. No, I'm, no. I'm fine with the. You hate the nostalgia for Ghostbusters. You hate. Are the... we not all a little worn out by Ghostbusters at this point? No, I'm. I'm. I'm with you. It looks like top. The pandemic won't be over until Ghostbusters Afterlife is in theaters. No, it. pandemic will be over when they just decide to not release Ghostbusters. <laughs> Wait, Patches, Top Gun being yours is hilarious because you are haunted by Top Gun. I <laughs> Wait, I'm trying to <laughs> confirm this because oh no, it's not Top Gun. I don't or that was the number one highest grossing movie of June 1986. I don't know. Box Office Mojo is a broken piece of shit now. I, mean, I can't tell what's going on. Yeah, it's bad news. These things were here back in my day. Well, now we feel busted about Box Office Mojo. Will there be some other nonsense coming up? Do we have reviews? Uh, the answers to those questions are respectively yes and no. Uh, so we don't have reviews. <laughs> I didn't follow that. Uh -oh. Galaxy of Heroes. Good podcast. Uh, uh, Dave, I, I would, you know, something that we were talking about off mic last week uh, <laughs> was about how Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes was oh. uh, in its latest update, you said effectively dividing the free-to-play players from the players who pay for uh, the the swag and whatever they're called and the gotcha elements. Do and, you pay, David? Uh, you occasionally, in-game I mean, for anything, really. I, I, I'm trying to balance my Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes payments against my child's daycare. It's a real, it's a real <laughs> act of uh, uh, balancing the scales. But um, yeah, here and there, you know, you got to keep the juices flowing. Got to keep. Uh, they, you know, I'm, 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 I have the brain for someone who is easily 
uh, falls into the traps of these games. And I, I bought myself uh, birthday careful. crystals this week, so I know exactly what you're talking about, David. Yeah, I, I mean, crystals. I have to think that I am less disciplined than Dave Gonzalez is about this. I think that's probably true in many arenas of life, certainly in the arena in the Galaxy of Heroes. But I, I just my brain and the way that it works, it's uh, it's primitive. Primitive fashion, I think it's just really susceptible. I'm such an easy mark for this shit. Uh, and the f- that is more than anything what makes me not want to play into it, is knowing and f- that feeling of being such a sucker for it. Um, but at the same time, it helps me get through the uh, misery that is our purgatorial existence. So, seems like a decent trade. But in Dave, the Galaxy of Heroes. In the Galaxy of Heroes. Yep. Dave, talk to us Wait, a little bit about... that was the about- preamble? Oh, no, that yeah. was the segment. No, no, no. This segment started with we a question. We didn't think about Galaxy of Heroes. The segment started oh, with God. a question. Fine. We, we took a, is... a quick detour into existential thoughts about you know, <laughs> the, how capitalism uh, helps us distract us, uh, distract ourselves from uh, our day-to-day existence. And now we have to on this mortal coil. And uh, now we are getting back to Dave. Please answer this question. Uh, can you explain to our listeners, to all of those who out there who, out there who are not on the hollow tables day in and day out, what the most recent Hollow update table. to Star Wars Galaxy Good of Lord. Heroes has done that has been so controversial to hardcore fans of the game. Sure. So there's a top tier of characters called Galactic Legends that are much more powerful and have a lot of good team synergy. And that is the highest form of character you could get in the game. In order to get those characters, you have to meet the prerequisites of a lot of other characters that have to be very geared up. So you have to spend a lot of time uh, getting those gear pieces, therefore playing the game every day. Uh, what they're changing are there used to be ways to beat those galactic legends with characters you wouldn't have to spend years getting and teams you wouldn't have to spend years making. You could focus and as a free-to-play player, maybe uh, battle against some galactic uh, legends. Who Can you are use going specific to... names here to at least make it interesting where you say... <laughs> yeah, there are only like, five... No, part of Star Wars where you're just saying like, Kai Adi Bundi or something, and like, yeah, so my ears can perk gal- up. <laughs> the galactic legends are uh, Rey from Rise of Skywalker, uh, Kylo Ren from Rise of Skywalker, okay. uh, Luke from the End of the Last Jedi... Um, Sith Eternal Emperor from Rise of Skywalker. A character that they've, probably does not exist in that movie, but sure. They've uh, just uh, released General Kenobi from the Return of the uh, Rise of the Sith era, um, and they will be releasing Lord Vader, which is Anakin after he's turned, but before the one that kills all the younglings. I believe the only one you're uh, missing or- is Supreme Leader Kylo Ren. Uh, I said Kylo Ren from the well, Rise of Skywalker. God damn it. You probably did. But anyway, anyway, so you have these main characters. They're the biggest ones. They're the most popular ones. Uh, they've changed the balance of the different uh, ways characters interact with each other and some of the RPG elements of the free-to-play characters. So it's going to be basically impossible <laughs> to beat another galactic legend with free-to-play characters, dividing the play base into free-to-play and galactic legend. Because if you're free-to-play and you're trying to get a galactic legend, you're grinding for at least a year. I think. Now, the follow-up uh, question that's on that's on everybody's mind right now, of course, Dave, is mm-hmm. how do you think mm-hmm. this is going to affect the uh, not the metaverse stuff in the arena, but the conquest battles, uh, where at the end of some of those yeah. conquest galaxies, you do end up fighting a computer uh, who is playing as one of the Galactic Legends. Um, are they? Do you think it'll just phase out the Galactic Legends from the Conquest mode, or are you simply not going to be able to progress through the tiers of the Conquest mode, particularly in the hard branch, if uh, 
if you don't have a Galactic oh, Legend boy. encounter. Uh-huh. I'm imagining that this. like uh- serious man chalkboard right now. Just, like, <laughs> all like the basically. math. If you don't I'll have Mentaculus, then... Matt, you're, you're <laughs> hopeless here. I'll answer David's question, and then I'll answer Katie's question. So here we go. Uh, David, I think they're going to keep it. It's going to be about managing those fucking data disks so that you could uh, punch up from your weight. And then hopefully they have feats that don't make them absolutely impossible to beat for free-to-play. But I don't know. I think I think Conquest is meant to get you to pay more. That's the type of game it is. Katie, when I uh, was born... Ghostbusters actually reclaimed the number one spot oh. in its ninth week of release. Uh, and looking I, at 1984, there's a good chance Ghostbusters was the number one film if you were born in 1984. Well, I looked up the weekend of uh, Patch's birth, and it was Cobra. Was the number oh, one. the Stallone movie? Okay. And, uh, and Top, Gun was, Top Gun was the week after. So truly your first week alive on this earth. It was uh, Top, Gun, uh, Top Gun's son above you. Well, that was anyway, write some reviews. Star Wars yeah. Galaxy of Heroes talk. If you would like to not hear that segment again, the power is yours. <laughs> Please leave us a review on iTunes, and we'd much rather read those instead of talking about Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes. An Although anti-heroic act. It does sound like there are some very controversial updates to come. There'll certainly be a lot of meat to chew on in future Galaxy of Heroes updates. So if that's the poison you want to pick, we can talk about that as well. It's up to you out there in La La Land listening to us. Uh I have another important thing to consider as I'm on Box Office Mojo. Uh, they've had a little subtitle underneath all their weekend box office curses for, uh, for all this year that says COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, they stopped doing them on June 18th. Does that mean that we should stop doing Whoa. counting the pandemic numbers? Or mm. uh, do we not follow what Box Office Box Mojo Office Mojo, maybe back in the day before they sold their soul to IMDb. But now I'm not taking my marching orders from fucking They, they declared off, the pandemic over order. the weekend that the hitman's wife's bodyguard movie. That was actually the beginning of a new plague <laughs> <laughs> that replaced COVID. Uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. When's the pandemic over? Who can tell? Not now. I think not, abundantly not, like not now. right now. We'll, no, we'll get the there, time. I guess. But yeah, not now. <laughs> Well, Scarlett Johansson sued Disney last week. Uh, I don't know the law and have not read the lawsuit, <laughs> but I have read the news reports about this. She's suing Disney, basically yeah. that they changed the release plan for Black Widow, despite what she had in her contract. They did not renegotiate her contract, according to her agent, this guy named Brian Lord, who is uh, Billy Lord's father, was once married to Carrie Fisher. I find that interesting. Oh, that is a wrinkle I was not aware uh, of. I know. Yeah, I know. Um, and, uh, Disney basically fired back and essentially accused her of not knowing that there was a pandemic happening, which is Their statement hilarious to is me. incredibly callous and wonderful. It Can I is, read this statement yeah, from please. Disney? Yeah, please. So you want to do a dramatic reading? Yes. Um, yeah, should I do it in the voice of, uh, the Green Knight of, inhabiting of Walt Disney Bob Chapek? There is no merit whatsoever to this filing. The lawsuit is especially sad and distressing in its callous disregard for the horrific and prolonged global effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. Disney has fully complied with Miss Johansson's contract, and furthermore, the release of Black Widow on Disney Plus with Premier Access has significantly enhanced her ability to earn additional compensation on the top 20 million she has received to date. Can you, okay. can I make two... Re- Callous disregard. Can I make one request yeah. and one comment? Uh, the request is that you say exactly what you just said again verbatim in the voice of Sean Harris's character from The Green Knight, King Arthur. <laughs> uh, and the comment I want to make is just to point out as we get into this conversation that The Green Knight cost less 
$5 million less, in fact, <laughs> than Scarlett Johansson was already paid for Black Widow, uh, regardless oh, you sound of like the you're money. A real, so uh, what you're Disney saying is Colin Jost is finally going to get to make his Green Knight. <laughs> I literally through. just saw Colin Jost. Colin Jost is writing a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. So uh, yes, yes, he's yes bringing that is all his the uh, expertise from the Tom and Jerry movie that he <laughs> coasted through to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles franchise. Anyway, this is not about Colin Jost. This is about everything Scarlett is about Johansson Colin Jost. waging war uh, against Disney and what it means. What is it? Uh, what, immediately after... movie still in theaters. Yes. Really <laughs> remarkable. Well, it's kind of falling away out of theaters. I mean, it, it's it still had a on huge, Disney premiere access. It had a huge opening weekend. It really toppled quickly. And there were so many takes, whether this was you know, people getting bored of Marvel, or if this was a sign that theaters aren't back quite yet, or what does it mean? But I, I feel like that conversation is over, and now that Scarlett Johansson is waging war, we're, we're onto something entirely different. Which it's is, a far more are, interesting are actors... battle than anything that yeah. happens on screen in Black Widow, I assure you. Oh, damn. <laughs> we're dragging it now. Um, um, Dave, when this news broke, you basically said, hey, this is why Universal bought The Exorcist for $300 million, which I have yeah, to Yeah, we had to just explain. recorded like, this, this Fighting in the yeah. War Room podcast. Um, and you explained it basically to the point of you sign a big deal up front so you don't have to have these negotiations after the fact. To my knowledge, there are very few people like Scarlett Johansson who have these kinds of deals where they make money on the gross, and there will be increasingly fewer, especially after this lawsuit. Uh like, how many people do you think this affects, Dave? And how many studios do you think is this going to scare into making weird deals like The Exorcist again? Mm, I think it affects a lot of people who have, like, long-running deals. Like, apparently, we're going to get some... Uh, we're, we might get some Emma Stone and Emily Blunt uh, action on the ScarJo side if uh, Disney doesn't play ball with their premiere access films. Uh, but this is, like, a weird way that I think is going to be phased out. I was trying to game out what it means for a future that is <clears throat> sort of divested from the star system in this way. And I think it's just further down the road we've been going on uh, since the middle 2000s uh, when people like Will Smith and uh, Adam Sandler and George Clooney and to a certain degree Tom Cruise started paying off a little bit less than what they were expected in is the whole idea of, uh, at least studio side, of making these movies with back-end involved is you could get those stars and you could roll them into your property or people who have independent movies uh, and need a way to get it funded. You attach an A-list star, you give them some back-end points, they get a little bit up front, but mostly everybody's understanding is they are invested in the film uh, and therefore want it to be good so they can make things. Uh, that's a misnomer in the sense that like stars usually don't have that much uh, directorial power. But for stars, actually, um, I think they all learned from the $20 million movies for uh, Jim Carrey days. It's actually better for taxes if you drag out your back end over several years uh, through some sort of back end deal because you're not getting hit with an a giant tax thing. So I would say averaging out those two positions. Uh, there's not going to be any back-end deals made up front with stars who are straight-up stars. There might be something like this with Scarlett Johansson where she's technically a producer and that she starred in enough Marvel movies to work her way up to get like rewarded with a producer title. I think that's going to be the sort of way that stars are going to try to get more mm. money off their uh, back-end deals, but it's only at the level of producers. The days of like letting your talent do that sort of thing uh, are now officially over. 
because apparently your talent could turn around and sue you. Uh, well, which they means, always could. Uh, it depends. Well, this is the on... part of the reason they didn't just dump everything on streaming, right? Because in this case, a lot of the writing about this this lawsuit and this decision was that maybe Disney knew that this would happen. I mean, they're not shocked that Scarlett Johansson is suing them. They've just made a calculated decision to put her movie on Disney Plus, suck it up, and gain, you know, subscribers to Disney Plus, forever subscribers, or, or getting all the premiere access money. Like they're making it, they're taking the calculated risk of paying out a lawsuit for her, breaking the contract by not making it a theatrical exclusive. Um, and only and they can do that because this movie is big enough and they have weighed the risks. But like, isn't this why we're not seeing all the movies just dumped? to streaming we're still having this conversation endlessly i would say online about like why aren't these movies coming on streaming this is one of the reasons they have to put yeah, them in it, theaters it, it's definitely one of the reasons that contractually they have to put them in theaters and at this point uh, the decision has been made that uh rather than break contract you keep everything under the table uh, from my understanding of the current situation with scarlett johansson is the first thing disney's gonna do if this actually gets to court is bring up the fact that she's required in her contract to go to arbitration and to not bring it into court, which is why I said it's like, or why everybody's saying it's kind of weird that this is taking this weird public uh, stance. Uh, but that being said, like, yeah, studios cannot afford for there to be a court-settled dollar amount of how much you pay people when you send their movie to streaming. Yeah. Regardless of what that is, they don't want that to be something that you could go back and relitigate through weird language in people's contracts they've already signed so there's zero chance i think that this goes to some sort of public court battle because nobody's going to want disney plus data made part of discovery no one's going to want these actual contracts out and about it's uh because the second they are uh whether or not scarlett johansson wins uh, there's a bar that's been set to like you could come at Disney if you're above or below this. Bar. I mean, to that end, my my big takeaway from this has to do with labor and capital and the fact that you know increasingly, even though people talk about streaming in terms of access uh, and the opportunities it provides, what you're seeing here is the fact that everyone, including major movie stars, and in this case, I, I don't know, uh, Dave, you would if uh, Scarlett Johansson was a producer on this film, a full fledged producer. Um, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, it is only continue to be the case in positions where the, the big movie stars are not producers on these films. But even the biggest movie stars are just employees now for a corporation. That is what is happening when everything is as vertically integrated as the movie world is today, where everyone really, at the end of the day, just works for Disney. Even if you're Scarlett Johansson, even if you have $100 billion uh, and all of the autonomy in the business world that you could hope for, you are... You are a Marvel star, a Disney employee, just as much as the guy who plays Goofy at Disney World is, except for you get paid a lot more than they do. So Colin um, Jones is still safe. Is that what you're saying? It's <laughs> I think there's like a there's like a Business Insider article that also came out this weekend that got a lot of negative tweets that was like, Iron Man could be anybody. He doesn't have to be Robert Downey Jr., which was a bad take. But the fact that these are the takes that are coming out around the edges while this public fight is happening means that that's absolutely what Disney thinks. Like, I, be aware that there's spin around this issue now, uh, because it's Disney and Scarlett Johansson. She's bypassed Marvel, so Marvel wants you to think something about them. They're only going to be able to leak it. And all these other stars are going to try stepping forward and try testing the waters for whatever their deal is. Well, I was about um, to say, it feels born for spin, right? Like, is the I saw a lot of people complaining about 
Scarlett Johansson, do you need 20 million more dollars? Aren't you very rich? But like, is this well, that's not what she, it's Scarlett about. Johansson has gotten herself in hot water time and time again yeah. and has finally found a way to punch up. So <laughs> yes. good for her. Well, so that's that's my big question <laughs> to you guys. Is, that, is this like good for movies? Is that a weird question to ask? Or is this like a noble fight against a monolithic operation? I, I don't know necessarily how to, how to interpret the circus of it all. Mm, I'm going to say it's not good for movies. I'm going to say this is a business fight. Because if you do roll this sort of mentality down, like, how do you make an independent film? You go into credit card debt, right? Because if you can't offer people back-end points, if the industry standard becomes pay for your movie up front, then you have a weird investor from, like, who runs a sex site out of, like, Portugal, or you are, are you independently wealthy. experience? Or... Well, uh, not my experience. <laughs> okay. It's also finding a way to make backend points have some kind of equivalent of it in the streaming era because as like Disney and Warner Brothers like just focus on the streaming services and just boosting their stock price, Scarlett Johansson and anyone who doesn't have Disney stock doesn't benefit from that. So how do you make that part of the benefit to the actors the way that box office backend works? I mean, I think there's going to be, there's still, the, the door is still open for the more traditional, quote unquote, Hollywood way of becoming a big enough star that you get your own mini studio within a big But I also don't understand sure, why right? they can't have the same sort of point system they do just based on a number of streams. Because, because they won't release that data. And, yeah, because but they that don't have to release that data. Of, I mean, why? Yes. It, it, somebody, somebody, somebody would, ask would have for to it. know. I mean, the weird thing about talking to people who've made shows and movies for Netflix is that no one knows how they do. I think that's strange. Yeah. But well, no I mean, one the gets po- that information. It, it, I would imagine that the talent, their their financial teams and whatnot, would have to know, just as they would have to know. I don't think they do. The financial no, they team, but they not may the not talent. now, but they would right. have to be people involved with in the, the future. Movie I know full know. well that filmmakers at any of these streaming platforms do not have access to the information that a lot of people right. might assume they do. However, in the paradigm that I'm describing, they would have to. But I think that's still preferable yeah. as far as meeting in the middle between Scarlett Johansson and Disney. Than having all this dirty laundry air in public and not ha- and having the star system as little of it continues to exist. Uh, I agree with you, unless when the data is revealed, it's just like that kills streaming. Like if the number isn't this magical number that everybody assumes it is, and everybody is just suddenly like well, paying f- points off a of back. The finances stream. are already so out of whack for streaming because they're all just loss leaders. All the content they're making, it's not they're not actually making money on it. They're not making money on the subscriptions. They're it's all just going into debt. And so, you know, I think maybe that ends up being the straw that breaks the camel's back. I don't know, but it is, there is a sustainable, and for a company as big as Disney, I don't see it being impossible for them to work out a way where a Scarlett Johansson is able to be paid a commensurate rate for a streaming movie as she would have for a box office hit. But yeah, you know. no, I think there is a way around that. And I think the reason that Disney didn't go into actual negotiations about this is this is a weird fucking case. They're not going to work with her on this Marvel property again. Uh, she has part of her deal that's hitched along to the gigantic Avengers uproar of Avengers Age of Ultron, where Robert Downey Jr. got to renegotiate and therefore he let everybody, all the other Avengers renegotiate. Uh, plus, they needed Black Widow to come out, it turns out. So they could have Hawkeye on Disney Plus in December because the post credit scene of uh, Black Widow leads into Hawkeye. And Disney Plus is more powerful <laughs> than theatrical at Disney right now, especially this year. So all of those things came together and it was just uh, more important 
to get Black Widow out there than it was for I, them to abide by their contract. I like that the idea that the post credits scene you know, on Black Widow is chiseled in stone, and unless you release this movie in time, no one will understand Hawkeye. As if you couldn't well, get I mean, here's... The, the scene from the movie, and then it doesn't matter. Like it's it's a light version of. Sony cannot move Spider-Man Far From Home. We have a Delta variant surge in December. Doesn't fucking matter. That Don't say that. We're not. Get, that's not. That's not gonna happen, right? What I mean, the people are saying that we don't know what the fuck's gonna okay. happen. But it's like Don't okay, they, they, you could b- between the stuff that's happening with ScarJo slash Delta variant surge, right? You could take Eternals. You could push it back. You could take uh, Shang Chi, I think, and push it back. Take at least good, as far as we know. Uh, the time. The uh, clock is ticking on that one. <laughs> but you can't you you can't uh you can't push back Spider-Man Far From Home because that would make you push back Doctor the Problem Strange with the cinematic universes. Well, I mean it wasn't a, it or wasn't a huge feeling. it wasn't a huge problem until we had a global pandemic, but yes, now they're having to deal with it and it's they're going to it's going to cost them. Period. Anyway, Scarjo is going to win this money because I can't see a way where Disney browbeats her and it works out for them without an, every other Disney star trying to vengefully come after whatever hole Disney leads open. It's really baffling to me they clapped back at all. That's that the dumbest thing I've really... seen them do in well, a long time. Well, like, we were talking about Disney making a calculation that it was more worth it to have her sue than to renegotiate the contract. The intensity of that statement made it seem like it wasn't a calculation. And that whole idea of like, you're the most family-friendly fem- entertainment company on earth, and you're going to call your giant female star selfish well, and statement like that. No- nothing adds up in that. There's case. definitely a disconnect between the image of the company and the nature of the yeah. content they release. I mean, I just saw. Oh, of course it I, is. I mean, I, yeah, but but like, I mean, I just I just saw tonight a movie that has a uh, distinctly anti-capitalist message about the value of making original content as opposed to mining IP and making sequels that was made by the Disney Corporation. And so, like, they can like, get away with that The difference speak. between the content and, yes, but, like, usually in your corporate statements or where you toe the line the most. Yeah, I just find it so funny that this conversation can only happen, this legal back and forth can only happen because the fictional character that Scarlett Johansson played in the movie universe is dead. Uh, and that had Black Widow <laughs> set up a sequel starring Scarlett Johansson, none of this probably would have happened or would have been uh, a very different show. I mean, maybe right. she would have had more leverage behind the scenes. Gal Gadot is not doing this scenes. about Wonder Woman right. 1984. Well, no, but they paid Gal Gadot, like, but they paid Scarlett before Johansson. they announced it. Well, well no, but they renegotiated, like, before they announced it. But Gal Gadot doesn't have to Max pay for Colin Jost, so. Also, like, we've been told what Gal Gadot got. I, don't, I think she got more than that. Because that's the same thing. You can't have a public bar out there of this is how much you pay somebody for this type of deal because they want to negotiate it each time so they make the most money. Yeah, not only did they uh, drop a giant bag with a money sign on it uh, at Gagado's door, they announced Wonder Woman 3 like two days after Christmas when it, yeah. when it dropped. They were yep. like, we're making this happen, please. The only the only Marvel person that has fallen in love with Scarlett Johansson at this point is Dave Bautista, who is Boy. in several ways on Twitter basically burning down his chances of playing Drax after Volume 3. Very mad that he didn't get to voice Drax in this What If cartoon that's coming out soon. That's one of several. He's just... Dave Bautista's going rogue, so everybody else at Marvel, though, is lockstep behind this. By the way, Black this. Widow doing fine in the What If cartoon, voiced by Lake Bell in a fantastic performance. Yeah, that's weird. Why Why is, is she not voicing it? it isn't, aren't the voices no. from everyone else, the this actual is, actors? We're getting on a huge tangent here, but some actors come back and some actors are replaced. And it doesn't will be. I don't know who decided we'll, what, but. 
We'll try More to dive that into later. that in mid-August when we, you know, seen some of it. Yes. But yeah, uh, yes, we haven't seen any of that. Uh, anyway, <laughs> ScarJo uh, versus Disney. That was that. It's going to be happening. If maybe we'll revisit it. ScarJo versus conclusion. Disney in the multiverse of madness. The multiverse of madness. <laughs> Now let's talk about another Disney movie. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody tell me how the, how Jungle Cruise was. Let's get out uh, of the Marvel universe and go to the who else Disney saw live action ride to the first. boat universe. The boat who else first. saw Jungle the Cruise? Katie and I, I saw, saw Jungle Cruise. Okay, I saw so. Jungle Cruise in thirty minute increments with a five year old. Honestly, the I way that it was said, intended to be. Seen. I think it is the way to watch this movie because I got the sense every time I sat down to watch it, I was like, "Oh wow, it's another action scene." Okay, there's a lot of energy in this movie, but it was fine because I had like been doing other things. I imagine sitting down to watch it in one two hour stretch is exhausting, but I had a fun and fine. Time. I imagine that the most fun exhausting part fine. of it was that every 15 minutes Sam would just go, "Can we just put on the fucking African Queen, please, or the Mummy and split the difference?" <laughs> like uh, I started watching some of Pirates of the Caribbean because I was like, "You know, there's another movie that's like this." Oh, man. It's also Can I boat. my big takeaway from Jungle Cruise is Jungle that Jungle Cruise being the new movie starring The Rock and Emily Blunt, directed yes. by Jean Colet Sarah. It's based on a ride. They go down the Jungle Cruise and they see some zombies and yes. There, there you go. Um, a ride that, I mean, I am so not Disney World uh, fluent. They're reading, after, after having seen the movie, reading all the references to the ride, I was like, oh, I guess that is the only possible explanation for why that line of dialogue was in the there. The Rock's because, bad jokes, yeah. Yeah, like the, the backside like the of water or whatever. Um, I like this little pork pie hat. But um, my main takeaway from Jungle Cruise is that it looks like a theme park ride, not necessarily an ad- adaptation of one, but simply just straight up a theme park ride. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that it was mostly shot um, for Hawaii in its grander moments, substituting as the Amazon, or more often um, as a soundstage it was in shot Atlanta. Shot location somewhere? Oh, okay. no. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's and you it, saying they went to Hawaii at all is surprising. Right. I'm like, that's, what? I mean, what that's entirely on a soundstage. Anyway, you know, in in contrast to a movie like The Green Knight, which is the kind of movie that you watch and wonder if there should be an Oscar for best location scouting. I mean, it's just like the the land is doing so much of the work in that film, um, and it's so evocative and so transportive. And this, I think, two hundred million dollar movie is just so typical of the candied fake gloss that you get with cgi driven blockbusters now we're all in the mindset where it's good enough to pass uh, pass off as some kind of vivid sense of place but for me it's deadening it's really hard to get sucked into anything that's happening here when you don't when your brain at a like lizard brain level is not buying in <laughs> to the illusion of what you're seeing and something like the mummy or even fuck the mummy returns which is a, a lesser film on just about every level um, and has some of the worst CGI known to man. Yeah, somehow the, is, uh, the rock as the scorpion king right, is more realistic the rock, than there the, is rock the rock connection. standing on Jungle Cruise. But just by virtue of them shooting in a place that could approximate Egypt, even if I'm assuming they shot in Jordan or Morocco or 
any of the places they at least put sand on the floor exactly (laughs) um does so much more for your mind to sort of ease into the high adventure and the fantasy of it all and even with paul giamatti walking around with the toucan on the shoulder which you know chef's kiss fantastic yeah only in it for 30 seconds but i'll treasure every one of those seconds um, Paul Giamatti widening his eyes as a submarine <laughs> comes toward him on a dock made me laugh out loud. Great. And, and Jesse Charlie Clemens like, driving that and submarine. I was like, I can't explain. Wonderful. Yep. Yep. But um, all, I mean, all that stuff it could, could be done in a black box theater and would still be just as enjoyable. But for, for this movie to have any sense of identity, to have any sense of atmosphere, to live beyond this moment um, and stick in the imaginations of the children who watch it. I think it needs a much more tactile and evocative sense of place. And Disney is just not making movies that have that sense of reality right now. And I think this no. is ground well, zero of like how badly they suffer. Pirates. Yeah. yeah, it's weird to be like, well, the, the, the verisimilitude of the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise. But like, there's an ocean there. You feel it. Yeah. When they build all these sets, I, I think about that Orlando Bloom, Johnny Depp sword fight they have in the, the sword making blacksmithery the mule mule powered blacksmith yeah and like they mm-hmm. have to go to different levels and gore verbinski's like moving around a big set and choreograph something i'm trying to think of yeah. any scene and there even, are even more... for the third one gore verbinski's like let's build two giant ships jungle cruise every scene where they're actually on the river looks like loving vincent or something it's yeah. swirling around them and, and, and there are uh, so immortals plants. there are immortals sword fighting in this movie just when you thought the pirates of the caribbean combat comparison could not be more obvious or less flattering to Jungle Cruise. You have two immortals uh, having a sword fight under a waterfall somewhere, and you're like, I've seen this before, but better. But here's the I thing. Really... Katie is right about watching this in increments, and and like there is joy to find. I think this is the rock, one of the rock's best movies, and uh, Emily Blunt is is doing the work here, and like. If I was watching this in spurts, watching them play off each other, that might be fun. Where does the bar for Rock's best movies? What's the bottom of that? Like everything else. This, so oh. like like Pain and Pain Gain and, gain and Jungle Cruise. Erasure. Good lord. Fast Five Erasure. He is like he better is fun in Jungle Cruise, even though. Uh, spoiler alert! Can we? Can I drop a spoiler? Please. E- yes. Quick. Sure. Even though he can't die in this movie. Uh, he is vulnerable in a way that he has almost contractually not allowed himself to be in some other films. Yeah. Um, and that is fun. He's able to sort of have a sense of like devil may care joy to this performance that allows the movie to spark to life here and there. And Emily Blunt is like Disney just grew her in a lab to be sort of this versatile player that just exudes live action Disney energy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she can't find a good movie. I like the, I like the two of them together. Their the, their romance is really weird. It doesn't. Yep. There's just like he's four no times her size. It, it doesn't make it. He's four times her size, and there's just like no. I mean, he's romantic like Tom chemistry. Cruise. He does not have all. romantic chemistry with anyone. He That's cannot. True. Yeah, yeah. It's really. But like, she also strange. knows that, and she has actually said as much on the campaign trail for this movie, talking about how she looks like like a little doll or his daughter or something next to him. And you feel that in the performance where even Emily Blunt, who is a wonderfully capable actor, can't like it all feels like it's going to be a wink to the camera every time they get within a foot of each other. Um, And all of the like pants and whatever skippy banter um, that's going for this sort of like, you know, Bogart and Hepburn energy. It all feels like a, a facsimile of that, which is fun. And then like they could be animatronics on a theme park ride sort of way but never really translate into a human capacity, which does make it difficult for Colette Sarah I to try and sell it I thought The Rock had more chemistry with uh, 
with Jack Whitehall or, uh, or the, <laughs> in or that the, scene where Jack the... Whitehall's talking about, you know, being ostracized for being a gay man and, and not really being able to find anyone. I thought that was like a really sensitive, romantic moment that I thought was going. I mean, I didn't think it was going anywhere, but I was hoping that would have been a that would have been a if, the, if Emily Blunt and The Rock were just friends and like The Rock got with Jack Whitehall. That'd be great. That's what the movie I mean, that would have started been... to make up for all the and I use quotes here exclusively gay moments <laughs> that Disney movies have <laughs> flaunted in the I past. I wanted to shout out that exclusively gay moment, even though it will be very easily cut from the Chinese release. Uh, just because it's like actually relevant compared to so many of the other uh, bullshit that they've put into these things. And like there's so many of these old school movies that have like the foppish like mm. British hero who can't let go of his suits. Who's always been like queer coded in this one. They make Even it the mummy on the surface. That. Yeah. Like it's a classic element of these kinds of adventure movies. And this time they put it on the surface. And I, I thought it was the, it worked well. The, I mean, baby steps. Sure. Uh, I do think yeah, that, not, you know, per patch's recommendation, here. like cutting back to the rock, just like raw dogging Jack Whitehall. <laughs> a big improvement. But, um, this is I, not White Lotus. We'll get there soon. But, oh, yeah. Great. Uh, Murray Bartlett is so the good rock, in that, raw dogs people on White Lotus? Well, yeah, he does, Katie. You really need to start Lotus. watching. Um, wow. But the the mummy of it all, I mean, I, you know, I hate to cite the mummy just because it was like, you know, such a formative and, and modernized take on these grand sort of adventure movies. But um, the mummy of it all is so pronounced in this movie in the first scene where uh, we meet Emily Blunt in an English library as opposed to like a colonialist library somewhere in the Middle East. But she is on a ladder that gets stuck between two bookshelves and she's like basically just a deep fake Rachel Weiss. And it's uh, it's a lot to take. Um, but the movie, the movie really makes the mummy feel like a. Uh, Hollywood classic. <laughs> so that's really the worst thing I could say about Jungle Cruise. And I'm afraid that 30 years from now, um, not that the mummy is quite that old, but let's say 25 years from now, there'll be a uh, a movie that makes yeah. Jungle Cruise feel like an antique. I, I was hoping Jean Collette Sarah could maybe do a little more with this. I feel like he gets the grungy genre movies. I like nonstop. I like run all night. Um, I like the shallows, but I don't know if this, this, scope gets away from him maybe because of too many cooks in this kitchen i i I think the beginning of the movie is pretty strong but by the end when we get the twist of the rock and then there's this whole like third act yeah that's like that's like an hour i could barely see what was going on it was terrible yeah there's a lot of parts where she's like running on a big purple tree and you're like that's yeah and i'm like where's jake sully (laughs) i did appreciate that the i mean some of those scenes do push back against the stereotypes the movies like this have Voiced for a very long time. They do it in a very Disneyfied, gentle way, but they do it all the same. I think it's probably in on the, you know the same league as uh, the exclusively gay moment that this movie has, but better than how it used to be. But I did appreciate that the call it Sarah uh, a tourist out there. Um, you know, I think by and large, at least from what I was able to see on the internet, kept their their heads low um, and tried not to die on this hill uh, as this being like you know the, this great work of the Disney Renaissance, uh, whatever. I mean, like, I think most people were able to see this as the work for hire job that it was. Um, And I do agree that I thought he brought very little to it. And actually, I mean, I think this is absolutely one of his worst films, but it's also cutty, particularly in the first half, in a way that um, none of his previous films have been, at least not this intrusively, uh, really chaotic and hard to follow in a way that doesn't at all jive with the energy of the movies that it's trying to channel. Um, but, you know, Jesse Plemons and Paul Giamatti are having fun. So at least that's two people. $30 on Disney Premier Access worth of fun? You decide. It's out now.
We talked a long time about Jungle Cruise. I know. Cruise. I'm like, whoops. <laughs> we talked way too much about Jungle Cruise. I'm L to the I to the end game. My will is to make it to the end game. Just chill because you could be offending. These ladies I'm defending. I was raised by that cool Kiri Dave, you went... You left your home we forced you to see in the middle days. of Yay, the Delta variant. You went to a movie yeah. theater. You bought a ticket. You sat with and a I group of randos. Tickets. You bought two tickets. Wait, you bought two tickets so that you had a free seat on one side of you? So I know my local draft house very well. The seat I like is in the back right, back row, to, far to the right of the theater. Why? Because at the front of it actually uh, leads to the stairs. And to the right, there's like a little gap because they didn't have mathematically enough space to put enough seats in. Plus, the draft house, their seats are wide. You know, you got a whole half of a table there. So I just bought a seat and was able to social distance myself with about a meter just by buying the correct seat in the theater. And you had the aisle on the other side of you. That's what I was curious about. The aisle was in front of me, and there's like a space. It's a yeah. very particularly for a theater, but yeah, if you sit in one of the back corners uh, in Alamo Draft House, you could create your own social distancing. Welcome so back, buying two tickets. Welcome back. And so you yeah. uh, you bought those two tickets in order to see a movie about a friend of mine yeah. named Garwin. Garwin. Go on. Gawain. Um, I swear his name is pronounced three different ways. Well, Sean Harris apparently threw a curveball on set, came in hot with Garwin, which uh, <laughs> David Lowry was, you know, that caused him to raise an eyebrow. I believe I read this on VanityFair.com, but maybe somewhere else. I read um, it. Joanna Robinson talked to David Lowry about it. It's very and uh, decided to roll with it, and God bless him for doing so, because everything Sean Harris does is, is a choice, and we love him for that. But uh, <laughs> yeah, Gawain, Garwin. But either way, we're all talking yeah, about the same guy, I, and Dave saw a movie about him. Dave, tell us about this movie. I did. So this movie is uh, based on a, a thir- Arthurian uh, medieval epic fantasy poem, uh, which it tells you uh, at the very beginning through a series of titles, uh, written anonymously, but definitely written in Old English. So actually, don't worry too much about that unless that's sort of your thing. But this is a story of a uh, knight who was a knight in the poem, but he is not uh, in the Green Knight, uh, who is, uh, like, the uh, cousin, or no, nephew of King Arthur uh, through his mother, Morgan Le Fay. I'm using the King Arthur, uh, you know, terminology, even though these characters aren't necessarily called out in the movie. Um, and, uh, he's, you know, a young dude. He likes, uh, having relations with his sex worker girlfriend and hanging out. And one Christmas he goes to hang out up at the round table, celebrate some Christmas. And, uh, King Arthur calls him to sit beside him. And he's like, tell me a story. I don't know you that well. And he's apparently like in the line of succession. So, uh, Deb Patel's like, oh man, I don't like have a story, and you can see that on his face. And just when it looks like he might have to admit he's uh, like all full of shit to King Arthur, enters the Green Knight, who is a foresty gentleman who has a challenge, which is anybody who would uh, face him in battle, um, he would then have to meet him at a green church north of here a year hence, and suffer the exact same wound uh, that whatever challenger gives him. This is from the poem. Doesn't make a lot of sense. 
That's cool because it makes <laughs> total, total sense in the movie. Does it? <laughs> well, yeah, but it also, you know, the, the yes, idea is that, that Garwin, Gowen, or anyone else there Gowen. could have just nicked the Green Knight right. if they wanted to. But Garwin is in a, not in that headspace. He's in, surrounded by legends. He's, sur- he's seated at he's the flunch. round table. He wants Legends to belong only, there. I believe, is the uh, sign on the door. He wants to be a knight of the round in the Final Fantasy VII summon spell, <laughs> Knights of the Round, the most powerful spell in the game. Uh, he wants to be part of that like ninety second cutscene that plays out every time you cast that materia, mm-hmm. um, and uh, <laughs> and so he goes a little hog wild. Then it's implied uh, at this point of the movie. This is not none of this information is is saved for a big reveal at the end, like it is in the poem. Because um, the information here is it's different, but uh, it's it's implied that his mother has, it, in order to help her son along his journey, to put him in a position where he's able to show his uh, knight bona fides, summons the Green Knight, because um, she sort of is the Morgan Le Fay character in this adaptation, um, and she seems to be a bit horrified at uh, how her son really swings away um, at the Green Knight's neck. But it works out for him because for a year he's basically king shit and he has mm-hmm. a story to tell. It's semi supernatural. All the people. They put on puppet shows. But it's a little. They put on puppet it's shows. tortured in a way that reminded me of uh, Casey Affleck's character at the end of the assassination of Jesse James. I believe his name was Robert Ford. Uh, in that, like, he's, he's sickened by this sort of stolen oh, yeah. valor of it. Yep. Yes. Uh, so then he sets out on his quest. We're gonna. I'm just gonna talk you through the whole movie. Yeah, and we could I love this. Decide when we stop. Spoilers uh, he, for a centuries-old poem. Yes, uh, he sets out on his quest uh, to find the Green Chapel, and uh, unlike the poem, which just basically says he goes on a he quest and he has some some stuff. Yeah, uh, this one uh, fleshes out his journey. He runs across a scavenger who is scavenging a battlefield and gives him directions but those directions are a trap. Uh, he runs across... Wait, the scavenger and- played by... Uh, oh, Barry Gyojin. Co- He's great. What? How do you say his name? Gyojin. Garwin? Garwin. Mimo? I think of him as To War George from Dunkirk, if that helps uh, jog your memory. Anyway. That is, yes, indeed. Uh, he, she runs across, uh, he runs across ghost Emphy's nest who continues showing up in. That was her. Yep. Ah. Slash Falcon and the winter soldiers flag smasher. But Aaron Kellyman's, uh, around as a, uh, ghostly saint. He runs across, uh, that finally, as in the poem, he uh, runs across a estate, uh, where Joel Edgerton plays the master of this estate. And uh, his lady is Alicia Vikander, who is also the woman playing the sex worker he likes uh, back home. So a little bit confusing, a little bit dreamlike. But at this point in the movie, you realize that's this movie's jam. Like, I talked over all the times I didn't know what was happening like I knew what was happening. But already by the time we get to, like, the estate at the end of the film, I've just given over to the movie taking me where it wants to go. I didn't talk about, like, the screaming mist giants. There's a bunch <laughs> of stuff. God, the mist giants yeah, are so fucking cool. Yeah. yeah. Talking there's fox. a fox. Good talking fox. fox. Well, yeah. fox nice doesn't fox. talk for a while, though. It's mostly a silent Your fox. doom is at hand. That's what he says. Wow. The fox, you know, I, I, you know, the fox doesn't have as clear-cut an explanation as some of the other elements of the movie. Um, and 
Regrettably, in a movie that looks spectacular from start to finish, I find the fox, which is one of the the more new school elements. I mean, even the giants were sort of more made with old fashioned uh, forced perspective. Yeah. The Fox doesn't quite look up to snuff, but Ah, not not enough to, not enough to really ding the movie, but um, I was just going to say after seeing jungle cruise, like seeing green Knight, like, you know, hours after finishing jungle cruise, I was like, Oh, right. That's what the outside world can look like. I mean, the the green Knight looks amazing. I really don't want to take anything away. Did they film this in uh, is it like Iceland or England? Where'd they film in Ireland? Ireland. It's all like, uh, it looks like weird and otherworldly and it's, Beautiful. Though it some looks, of the landscape uh, does look like Iceland. I don't know if there are any like black beaches, but um, some of the, the some of the areas that he's walking by do give me that vibes. But uh, Andrew Dross Palermo, who shot a lot of David Lauer's stuff, sh- shoots the absolute shit of it. The production design is incredible. Um, as we said in our first segment, this movie costs less to make than it did to pay for Scarlett Johansson's upfront salary for the Black Knight and every dollar mm-hmm. spent on the, on the Black Knight, the Black, Black Widow, and every uh, <laughs> dollar spent on this movie is stretched so far. Um, it really just looks phenomenal. Yep. So he's tempted by the man in the house, the lady in this house, in some sexual manners, but managed to maybe hold on to his honor while also uh, claiming a sash that apparently will protect him uh, as long as he wears it. This sash uh, becomes like a problem with a deal with Joel Edgerton in the poem, but like, don't worry about it too much in the movie. Just kind of gets sexual tension up in there. Finally, he happens across the Green Chapel and faces down with the Green Knight and uh, manages to <laughs> run away. Well, I mean, we're really just going to talk through every plot point in the movie. We don't have to spoil the whole thing, but, uh, I mean, the end gets complicated. I don't think you've really spoiled anything. This is definitely a a spectacle, a journey, a a big fantasy movie that's moody and uh, not plot-heavy. I have talked to people who thought this movie was dreadfully boring, and other people who were just totally absorbed and and lost in what David Lowry was cooking up. The end does get, like, twisty a little bit, so we won't go that far. But um, I, I guess my big question after watching this, is I, I was taken. I, I really enjoyed watching Dev Patel um, come. He does that once. And just, like, wow. Okay. I didn't, know, I didn't know we were. I thought that yeah. was Sorry, a that is Let's a spoiler. not talk about the end. That's a but. spoiler. Yeah, well, we were talking about the end, but then we will talk about completion. Uh, no, my point here is that I, I really was quite absorbed, but I am left kind of being like, what? Does this movie have something to say about fathers and and mothers this mother putting this challenge the green knight in front of him um like what yeah, are, what is this ultimately getting at uh, there's a lot to it but is there anything under this this beautiful surface for any of you yeah the mother stuff i think is really powerful the idea of your mother being like powerful and terrifying and wanting the best for you but having to kick you in the ass to get there and like her she's standing next to him like in very visibly in like the very final shots of the movie I think it's about and ambition. Perhaps appearing and about, elsewhere along the way. In perhaps other forms. appearing elsewhere. Um, it's about like ambition and wanting to make something of yourself and wanting to prove yourself to people back at home and all the terrible decisions you can make as a result of that. Um, there's, I don't know, it's like all these like gigantic themes that have existed in literature since the poem. Masculinity, uh, honor versus decency, paganism versus Christianity, and civilization to go along with it. The, the two being presented sort of synonymously. I mean, this movie has no shortage of things going on roiling under the surface. 
it updates the uh, classic sense of the word chivalry back into a theme that can encompass all of those things, which I really enjoyed about it. Mm. Because, like, basically trying to be in film school and explain to people who like romantic comedies that what they call chivalry is, like, so much deeper and weirder and, like, it's natural traditions. I think this movie really comes across as, like, you know, what if, like, there was a millennial knight and he still had to deal with, like, shows? Dave was really <laughs> happy to see cinema reclaim milady. You know, he spent yeah. a lot of I time mean, in college it's, saying it's that. Also, I, found it very, I found it very modern uh, in a sort of oh, yeah. elegant and uh, unforced way, in the way that Garwin is reckoning with his own self-worth, his own, having to arrive at his own sort of metrics for goodness, um, which is really all any of us can hope for. In a world where there are so many different systems and, and value systems that are pressuring upon you, the, their own uh, meanings of, of goodness and self-worth and what constitutes honorable behavior. And really, at the end of the day, we all have to arrive at our own uh, codes of moral conduct. And this is one man's journey from that. And really, he's sort of a redemption tour. I mean, from, from the action that dooms him back to a place where he can at least think of himself respectably again um he cancels himself <laughs> i guess that's what i'm getting at <laughs> at the start of the movie and then uh, slowly <laughs> climbs himself back uh, out of the hole i don't know but i did find the the ending which um i, I want to liken it to another movie but that might be too much of a spoiler but uh there is a kind of ending that this movie is doing that it has been uh that is not inventing that it's sort of riffing on and i think it does it very well and it, it fits really beautifully into the conflicted nature of this poem, the interpretations of which have been argued about and debated and the origins of which are the same for 600 years. Um, and I think that having an ending that allows for not necessarily alternate possibilities, because it's pretty clear what happens, but that sort of follows those thought paths um, into other places yeah. is, is a really effective way of capping off the story. Um, and I, I would say, you know, a... there's a line that, not to be too presumptuous on David Lowry's behalf, but there is a cheeky line uh, that Alicia Vikander has about the books in her lavish estate that she improves upon where she sees fit to do so. And that's easier, you know, it's easier to sort of take that attitude towards classic material when the material is 600 years old. And uh, I think that, at least by the standards of how we consume narrative now in the 21st century, there are improvements it's a useless word in this case but there are certainly choices that david lowry makes that are more satisfying i would say at least to an an audience of me than uh they are in the original poem which i read uh in its entirety after getting home from the movie um and was really because wow. e they published a new edition of it that actually has a forward with, by david lowry uh, and the translation itself is exceptionally modern the translation is by uh bernard o'donohue um and uh there's a picture of dev patel's silhouette on the front hard to miss uh and it's yeah i mean it's just especially when seeing it laid out in such modern language it's easy to appreciate where david lowry felt that as a movie anyway there were places that needed to be made uh changes that need to be made things that need to be made more concrete uh themes that katie need to you were gonna jump in clarify <laughs> 
I just was going to say I thought a lot about Ghost Story. Obviously, it's a, another David Lowry movie. I think it's the most like thematically similar of all the movies that he's made to this. It's just where you're not totally sure what's happening. You're not sure what's real, what's in the brain, but it doesn't really matter. It's about like the feeling that it evokes. Like there are several moments where it kind of like speeds up time the way that Ghost Story does. And you feel like you're being kind of like flung out of the way that the narrative is working in a way that feels very emotionally powerful. Even if you don't understand Which what's going on. Which moment are you thinking of then? Uh, there's the, well, there's the ending, which I don't want to oh, get yeah, too much into. Up. And then there's a moment, there's a, a shot that I don't think it's too much of a spoiler where he's been like tied up by the scavengers oh, and yeah. the, the camera pans 360 and comes on his skeleton and he's not dead and you don't know what's happened. Like, is that a vision of something? It's or whatever, a forest just, that makes you old. Ah, yeah, there you go. There's some um, interesting editing in this film. Too, yeah. Like some flashes, like just some strange, unnerving cuts. Uh, yeah, it's formally. I'm hoping that's past- part of what was like because this was supposed to premiere at South by Southwest. Pandemic South by Southwest that got canceled, and apparently David Lowry didn't like that cut and it spent the you know intervening time making the Green Knight that you could see in theaters. But it seems like it really worked because I I was not one of the people who is, was bored by this movie. This movie could uh, pan over as many trees lit perfectly as it wants. <laughs> I, yeah, the the I mean, David spoke a little about the cinematography, but at times I thought it looked like um, almost like a Roy Anderson movie. It's uh, obviously shot on location, so much of it, but it's like meticulously lit, and like the smoke is drifting in at just the right way, or like the background effects. Uh, I don't know if they're. I know David Lowry has a, a great affection for the '80s fantasy films that were employing matte paintings such and i'd be curious to learn about the technical special effects uh techniques definitely some good math oh, the giants reminded me so death. much of the yeah. animation in that movie uh fantastic planet um sure giant blue french alien yeah yeah <laughs> like that really was the vibe i got that same sort of mystical eeriness because there is a sinister feeling to everything in this movie right. um and that it's a real charge that it brings to it that i Found it, you know, made it impossible for me to get bored. I guess I can imagine. There's even, why there's even a shot of like Dev Patel just riding a horse on a on a path away from Camelot for the first time, where you see Camelot like smoke coming out of the various chimneys, and I'm just like, this is this is meticulous in a way that how do you stretch the budget this far? I, I, it's it, it is real craft on display, and uh, I was kind of going ebbing out and in, in and out of just like noticing the details and overthinking it, and kind of losing myself in the. No, that shot's maddening. It, it goes on for it's like a, a minute shot. and a half, and he like it's through a battlefield, and it's like the camera drifts over areas that I know have bodies on it. It's a great shot. Um, and and speaking about the just the modern tone, and this is what I loved about Dev Patel, and I'd love to hear what you guys think about the the performances in here because obviously Dev Patel is the anchor, but we get two Alicia Vikander performances. But Dev Patel has this the kind of modern vernacular like he walks in a room and he's just like hey what's up almost and it's, uh, and everyone else is speaking in ye old english i find that he has, no he has some vowels in these tossed in there he says my lady he does but he's like hey, where were you guy win and he was like yeah, i was at mass <laughs> yeah. that's how he sounds yeah he's that, a mass hole in this one excellent i came back from mass got a bit of dunking um, socks <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I read, Alice, I think it was Alison Wilmore's review that pointed out that this was supposed to come out like within months of the personal history of David Copperfield, which I've talked about on this show. It's on my top 10 list last year. I really love that movie. Mm-hmm. This is a really interesting companion piece with a, just a Deb Patel as a young man kind of learning how to make himself in the world and be less selfish and stupid and, and to you know be interact with people around him. 
Uh, they're very different movies, but he's just really good at that, like striving young man character. And this movie allows him to stretch beyond that in really fascinating ways. He's such an ideal anchor. For I mean, weird movie. it's the kind of energy that he was able to pull off really in Slumdog Millionaire is one of the things that worked about that yeah. movie. Um, and then I would imagine I haven't I, I was going to pretend for a second that I had seen uh, his seasons of the British version of Skins. Oh, I thought you were going to uh, say Last Airbender. I was getting it. No. But uh, I just because I felt I could so clearly extrapolate the energy that you that you were talking about here, Katie, and that I can see trace back to Slumdog Millionaire. I can so easily in my mind's eye anyway, extrapolate that to the world of skins as I know it. Um, But, uh, you know, when he was a teenager, but I I have not seen the British skins. Uh, But um, yeah, it's something that he's done very well for so long. I just want to talk about the beginning of the movie, like the moment where it sort of I, I recognize that David Lowry was. I don't know that the, the movie was working for me and going to speak on my level was how in the very like second shot of the movie after the opening little prologue with the demonic voiceover and Dev Patel sitting on the throne, uh, it starts with a house on fire. There's like a house every time it cuts back to it because it's during the opening yeah. credits. The, there's, you can slowly see the flames consuming this thatch roof. And uh, and then the camera and there's like some business going on. These two people run out of the house and get on a horse and run away and there's a drunkard passed out in the front of the frame um and then the camera zips through a window and finds dev patel asleep there and there's no follow-up on the house but there is this sense of like a dereliction of duty of of something happening there in this world that he has chosen to not pay attention to he's more focused on his own pleasure on his own uh, vacation on his own christmas uh gifts that he's giving to himself and um you know just living in the world of the court and everything revolving around that and I just found that detail to be so satisfying um, in a way that... Well, that's like the key change, because you read the poem recently, but like, uh, Gwen Garwin is like, he's a full-fledged knight in the poem, right? Yes, I think so. Yeah. Uh, so like, the, but it's such a key difference to make... Uh, I love titles that mean two things, uh, to make him a new knight, a green knight, if you will. Uh, and then also, like, run it through the whole story. Right, whoa, he, he is not the whoa, Green Knight. Whoa. He, he is he's not the Green, green knight. knight. He's a Green Knight? Like, he's, like, a new, he's green. A new Knight? He's Green? Well, the, yeah. the new knight. He's Green. <laughs> I mean, sure. I mean, the, the double entry, I mean, of course, I don't want to distract from the fact that the Green Knight is referring sorry, to I another... i spoiled my Galaxy Brains voice. <laughs> the Green Knight is referring to another character. But yes, as a, yes, sure, why not? Uh, he is a Green Knight, even if he is never actually crowned. A night or I'm just saying it's it's like such a key choice to how the entire movie comes out because then the movie gets to be about that and Deb Patel's performance gets to take you through that. And it's amazing and how it's, it's even how even though Dev Patel is like 30, 30, I don't know how old he is, but he's certainly not a teenager anymore. Um and thirty in uh Arthurian ages is like as we see from Arthur himself in this movie, who's uh only fifty or so, is basically dead. Um, and yeah, right. yet he's still able to Dev Patel in this movie channel that sort of um, knavish energy of of you know someone who is a kid in King Arthur's court. I mean, he still feels like a scraggly teenager, even though he is most definitely the age of a man. And yet that contrast, as opposed to giving a sort of um, uh, what's that fucking musical that's coming out, uh, Dear Evan Hansen. Uh, <laughs> vibe. Um, it it just feels kind of right. Like he should have his legend by now, and it's eluded him. And he is only becoming um, a little bit more unstable the older he gets, without having claimed it. And 
that choice works phenomenally well for me. The Green Knight. Good movie. It is, it is a good movie. It is only in theaters, but it will eventually not be in theaters if you feel uncomfortable. I think it, you could make it work, though. It's, uh, wear a it's mask. A, it's a theatrical experience. Yeah, wear a mask. Wear a mask, go to weird time. Buy out the seat next to you, know your theater really well. Don't, All those be, things. Don't cut off the be head vaccinated. of any Green Knights or... Yeah, do not cut off the head of anyone who challenges you. You will. Yeah, yeah. Just scratch them on the cheek in a place that would be cool if you had a scar there, and Uh then off you go into into infamy. Dance, baby, dance like the world is ending. Dance, baby, dance like the world is ending. Dance, baby, dance because the world is ending. Dance, baby, dance like the world is ending. Dance, baby, dance like the world is ending. That does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. We're talking about The Suicide Squad, which is a movie you can watch at home on HBO Max this weekend. Join us. In the meantime, tell the people who you are. I'm Matt Patches, senior editor at Polygon. I'm on Twitter, at Mr. Patches. And Dave, you made a good reference to the Galaxy Brains podcast. I highly recommend people check that out. The other movie podcast that I'm producing at the moment. That's uh, subscribe on Apple Podcasts. But also, if you need lots of podcast content, fightingintheworm.com has so many old episodes. If you watch a movie from the last 10 years or however long we've been doing this, we probably talked about it on a podcast. So go to fightingintheworm.com and go listen. Tell us what we said. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm David Ehrlich. I'm a film critic at IndieWire. You can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich. You can find all of us together on iTunes at Fighting in the War Room. And please do. Uh, please go on there and leave us a review. It will spare us from having to talk about Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes. It'll spare you from having to listen to us talk about Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes. Uh, everybody wins. Thanks. And I'm Dave Gonzalez. Spell my first name D-A-7-E. You could follow me there on Twitter. I've been listening to a lot of uh, You're Wrong About Episodes I Missed. So hey, I'm also writing a book about the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Who knows when it's going to come out, but pay attention. And I'm on The Storm, a Lost Rewatch podcast. That's only going to be happening for like four or five more weeks because we're in season six. We know about the Cork Island. Shit's going down. Go check it out. There was a Cork Island? Oh, we're like the island sinks and then pops like a... The Highland is a cork. My memories of uh, Lost are fuzzy, obviously. <laughs> you listen to a podcast to jog it. Okay. Uh, I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at Vanity Fair on the Little Gold Men podcast, where we're talking about the Green Knight this week, in addition to a bunch of other stuff and the Emmys. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. And we're all on Twitter at F-I-T-W-R, where you can tell us how you pro- prefer to pronounce Garwin, or you can answer this week's lightning round question, which was... In honor of the Suicide Squad, who is your favorite cinematic anti-hero? Thank you for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. I'm done.